Happy Wednesday, uh, church family. Uh, let me encourage you to go ahead and get a copy of God's Word and find Psalm 51, if you would, with me um, this evening. I want to talk to you uh, tonight about sin, prayer, and forgiveness. Sin, prayer, and forgiveness. Now, before we get into the scripture reading and the Bible study message, I do want to mention to you that we have had a recent loss in our church family. Yesterday afternoon, uh, Claude Oxford, who has been a longtime member of Pitts Baptist, went home to be with the Lord. Uh, Claude was 78 years of age, and he was living uh, with his older son, Chuck, and was having difficulty breathing yesterday afternoon. And he went into the den, sat down in a chair, and they checked on him a little bit later, and he was unresponsive. And they took him to the hospital, and it does appear that he had a heart attack, at least that's the preliminary report. And they could not uh, revive uh, Claude, and also he had a, a DNR anyway. So he, he did pass away. So we do want to let you know about that. At this time, it looks like the arrangements are going to be on Saturday, Mar uh, Saturday, May the 30th. That'll be a week from this coming Saturday, beginning at 10 a.m. in the worship center here at Pitts. Uh, we'll have a visitation for the family, and then we'll move directly into the funeral service. And so pray for Ricky Oxford and his brother Chuck and their families as they mourn the loss of uh, their dad. I always think about Claude, how much he loved Bible study and uh, how committed he was uh, to studying the scripture. And so he leaves to us a great legacy in that regard. Let's read together, beginning in Psalm 51. Notice what David says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You know, a couple of weeks back, a number of you, in fact, quite a number of you, it was, it was an encouraging number, joined me for a day of prayer, prayer on the mountain. Uh, prayer on the mountain was instigated by a 95-year-old pastor in North Carolina who has been praying for revival and spiritual awakening in America for a number of years, and he felt led to challenge not only North Carolina pastors, but but Christians here in the state and all around, to join him in a day of prayer for spiritual awakening. And we did that a couple of Wednesdays ago. And again, I was encouraged by the number that signed up for that. But I want to remind you that prayer for spiritual awakening is not simply a one-day event. God doesn't work that way. You may recall in the Old Testament that the Israelites were in Egyptian bondage for 400 years and they were crying out to God for God to deliver them. Imagine being in bondage that many centuries and crying out to God. But you know, God eventually did hear their cries and sent to them a deliverer, Moses. But that's certainly an illustration to us that God is not on our timetable. God has his own timetable. He's eternal. And he's not constrained by our wishes for him to act today. And so you and I need to persist in our prayer life and we need to persist in praying for Spiritual awakening. I gave you the the theme verse for that day was 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear their prayers and I will answer and I will cleanse their land or heal their land and forgive their sin. What a great verse that is in the Old Testament. Well, I want to remind you tonight Uh, sort of riding piggyback to that, if you will, that we've also got to constantly deal with sin. God does not fill dirty vessels. If we are living in sin and expecting God to give us spiritual awakening, it's not going to happen that way. We have to constantly be repentant, We need to be confessing our sins, turning away from it, seeking God's cleansing, and living in righteousness and holiness, and also calling out to God for awakening. So again, these these are patterns that have to be ongoing in our lives. Again, I want to remind you, sin and God don't mix. And you know, we see here in Psalm 51 that King David learned that the hard way. Uh, we see here that David cries out for God to forgive him so that he will once again experience the joy of his salvation, that he would be restored in his, his spiritual life to fellowship with God, and that 
in that restored state, he could live a life of impact for God's glory. You know, in Psalm 66, verse 18, the the Bible says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, the scripture says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. And so clearly sin is something that you and I have to deal with in our lives if we're going to have an effective prayer life. Now, there's a number of words in both the Hebrew language and the Greek language for sin. Now, just let me mention a couple in the interest of time. One of the most common biblical words for sin is harmatia. It's a Greek word that refers to missing the mark. You've probably heard the analogy before of somebody with a bow and arrow, uh, and they're aiming for the target, and the arrow goes astray. It misses the target. Well, that particular word for sin, harmatia, means the person has missed the mark. They've strayed from the mark that God has set down for the human race. There's another Greek word that refers to transgression also. And it's spelled P-A-R-A-B-A-S-I-S. That's the way you would bring the spelling over into English. And it refers to going aside or overstepping. Now, that's an even stronger word than the previous that I gave you. It's a case where you know the law of God and you deliberately set it aside. You transgress it. You choose your own way over God's way. There's still another Greek word that Paul uses in Romans 3.23. And it would be spelled this way. H-U-S-T-E-R-O-S. And that word refers to falling behind or lacking. In the context of Romans 3, he's saying that we lag behind. We fall short of God's glory. Now, as I mentioned, that's just a small sampling. I've given you three Greek words from the New Testament. Uh, There's seven key words for sin just in the Old Testament, the Hebrew. And we didn't even cover those. Now, you may ask, why are there so many different words for sin? I think the reason would be because sin is such a complex problem, affecting so many areas of our life and taking on so many different forms. But I've got good news for you. The same Bible that speaks against sin helps us when we do sin. And that shows us how much God loves us and understands us and desires a relationship with us. In the Word of God, God has addressed the problem of human sin. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. Psalm 51, again, as I said earlier, is the heart cry of King David after he sinned. After he sinned a very dark sin. So Psalm 51 is his prayer of confession. Now let me ask you to write down 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 for the backstory. And I'm going to just ask you later on to go back and read those two chapters. And you'll, you'll see what those two chapters are about. 
Uh, King David uh, sees Bathsheba out on a rooftop uh, bathing. He lusts after her. He sends, he, he sends for her and commits adultery with her. And then she informs him that she's expecting a child. David panics and wants to cover up the sin of adultery. And so what does he do? He ultimately has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, placed in a, in a certain line, front line in warfare, so that he will be killed. And that's what happens. Well, after, your, after Uriah is killed, David thinks the matter is settled. He's covered up his sin. He's gotten away with it. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Now, folks, imagine having to live with yourself knowing you've done something like that. You've not only committed adultery with another man's wife, but you've had that man killed. Imagine living with something like that on your conscience. We know what happens. The prophet Nathan confronts David, and David finally deals with his sin. That's a sad commentary on sin also. Too often we don't deal with our sin until it has become known. It would be far better to confess it and repent of it as soon as it happens. Well, again, Psalm 51 is the record of how David went before God and sought cleansing and forgiveness. I'm glad we have Psalm 51 in the Bible because it's a lesson to us about how we need to deal with sin. Now, let me ask you to jot down several things here, several lessons that we learn. First of all, we learn that we are to cry out for God's grace. Cry out for God's grace. In verse 1, notice what David says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. He's asking God to be gracious to him. He's crying out for God's grace. Now, folks, let me stop a moment here and remind you and I in New Testament times that God's grace is not to be an excuse for sin. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul ran up against a group who had the mindset that God's grace meant that they could sin. The more they sinned, the more of God's grace they would experience. Uh, they were known as libertines. And Paul writes in the book of Romans, the end of Romans chapter 5 and going into Romans chapter 6, he says, God forbid that we should live that way. God's grace is not to be an excuse that we could sin more so we could understand or experience more of God's grace. But folks, nonetheless, we can definitely be grateful that there is enough of God's grace to cover our sin. David appeals to that aspect of God's character. God is filled with not only grace, but notice what he, he says there in verse 1. He talks about God's loving kindness. In the Hebrew, it's the word hesed. God's covenant love, his steadfast love. 
David recognizes that he himself has not upheld his end of the covenant. How many times have you and I in our Christian lives failed to be a good witness? Uh, We failed to be faithful. God is always faithful. God always keeps his end of the covenant. But we've not always been faithful. So David is essentially asking God to uphold his end of the covenant regardless of how far short David himself has fallen and disappointed God. Folks, we can be so grateful that God is filled with compassion. He has not treated us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103 talks about that. How God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Again, we can be so grateful for that. You know, I think in the Old Testament, some of the examples of God's compassion, right off from the beginning of the Bible, in in Genesis, in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, and they're hiding from God, what does God do? He goes looking for them. He calls out to them and says, Adam, where are you? Then I think of the book of Judges, the second cycles of sin and judgment and restoration that take place in the book of Judges. People would go their own way. Uh, Everybody acted like he was his own law and he would do right in his own eyes and the nation would, would get in a pattern of sin. They would rebel against God. God would bring hardship and discipline upon the nation. They would cry out to God, and then God would forgive them and send them a deliverer. There's seven cycles of that in the book of Judges. What do we see there? God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind. He's gracious. Even when we fail, even when we sin, God is patient with His people. In fact, God's compassion and long-suffering with us is given in the Bible as why you and I are to be patient and long-suffering with one another. You remember Jesus talking to Simon Peter about that in Matthew 18? Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Uh, Seven times? And Jesus said, no, I tell you seven times, uh, 70 So somebody says 490 times, but that wasn't the point at all. The point is that we're to have unlimited forgiveness. As those who have experienced God's grace and forgiveness, we are to extend that to others. And so again, as we go before God, the first thing we need to do is we need to cry out to God for an experience of His grace. Secondly, confess your sin and guilt. Look at what he says in verse 2 and 3. He says, Wash out all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done right and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Notice as David confesses his sin and guilt to God, what he states here. In verse 3, he points out that his sin is constantly before him. 
He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. A cover-up helps no one. God knows you. God knows what's in your heart. He has the hairs on your head all numbered. Uh, So God certainly knows about our sin. He knew about David's sin. And David's sin was constantly before his own eyes. He couldn't get away from it. You know, that ought to make you and I humble before God. When we know our own hearts and our own propensity to sin. We ought to be like the publican in Luke uh, Luke chapter 18 who beat on his breast and would not even look up to God in heaven. And he said, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, the Pharisee was proud. I'm glad, God, that I'm not like that publican over there. You know, I do this and that. Uh, I, I live a good life, but publican, you know how unrighteous he is. And, and yet the publican, when he went before God, he acknowledged his unrighteousness and he humbled himself. And the Bible says he's the one who went home justified. He's the one who went home clean. So just knowing the fact that our sin is ever before us, just as King David's was, uh, knowing our own propensity to sin ought to make us humble before God. Humble yourself before God. Confess your sin. And then notice what David also says in the confession. He he points out in verse 4 that he recognizes that it is against God that he has sinned. Now, I find that a very interesting statement. He had sinned against Uriah in committing adultery with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He had committed sin against Bathsheba. He had committed sin against the the covenant of marriage. He had committed adultery in his own life. Then he had had Uriah murdered. He had sinned in so many ways against so many people. And and yet, what does he say? Against you and you only have I sinned. David's not denying that he's sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and even his sin against his own body. He wouldn't have argued that, but... He's acknowledging that sin is ultimately against God because, you see, God is the lawgiver. God is the one who has set the standards for right and wrong. And that being the case, David recognizes that sin is ultimately against God. David knows he has broken specific covenant stipulations. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments that we find there, deals with both adultery and murder. And since it's God's law, David has sinned against God ultimately. And so a third thing he points out in his confession here is that he points out God is just when he judges. 
God's judgments against us are perfectly accurate. He knows our hearts. He knows our motives. He knows our sins. You know, the lost man will not be able to stand before God one day on the day of judgment and say, God, you, you don't understand what I was going through or what I was faced with when I committed that sin. God does know because God knows all things. And so that makes God perfectly just when he judges. A fourth statement here about David's confession. He says, in sin I was conceived. He mentions that in verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Folks, we come into this world with a sin nature. You know, psychologists and sociologists try to blame things on someone's environment. And I don't want to downplay the importance of someone's environment. We know that, the, that one's environment certainly does have an impact on their life. I don't want to deny that at all. But environment doesn't go nearly far enough in explaining people's sin. You know, it appeals to us though today, doesn't it? Because we live in such a no-fault type society. Everything that we do wrong is the fault of somebody else or something else. But folks, what did David say here? David said, in sin I was conceived. What he's speaking of there is original sin. Children are not innocent. It's just not held against them until, until they understand. Original sin is, is that Adam's sin is a part of all of us. Some theologians talk about the federal headship of, of Adam, that Adam stood at the head of the human race in terms of our guilt. We were in his loins, so to speak, so that when he sinned, we sinned. Likewise, as far as redemption, federal headship says that Christ stands at the head. And so as Paul says in Romans 5, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. If you're in Adam, you die. But if you're in Christ, you're forgiven and you have life, his life. Folks, that's why some church traditions will even baptize infants. They believe they are baptizing the infant and getting them free of original sin. Now, Baptists don't do that. Baptists believe that while children are not innocent, it's just not held against them until they understand that they have broken the law of God. What I'm trying to get at is man does what he does because at the very heart and core of his being he's corrupt he's sinful he's in need of conversion and that's what David is acknowledging a man said to his preacher one time he said preacher I don't know that if, I don't know that I can swallow all of this sin stuff and the preacher said, sir, you don't have to swallow it. It's already inside of you. And that's true. 
our nature, we have a sin nature. We, we sin by choice because we have a sin nature. David goes on to acknowledge in verse 6 that God is after something that man can't deliver on. He says, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. God is after truth in the innermost part. God is after truth and righteousness and holiness. But you and I on our own, we can't offer that. We don't have it to offer. Because again, at the very core of our being, we're sinners. We were conceived in sin. That's why without the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be sunk. We would be without hope. Because folks, it is at the cross that God once and for all dealt with our sin. With our sin nature and our sin choices. God dealt with that at the cross. That's why Paul said he gloried in the cross. Because without the cross of Christ, we would still be in our sin. So four powerful statements King David makes as he confesses his sin to God. A third thing I want you to see here that David does. We learn that we are to call upon God for cleansing. Call upon God for cleansing. Go back to verses 1 and 2 again. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out all my transgressions, wash away all of my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. And then if you were to also read from verses 7 through 12, you would see David continuing to call out to God, saying, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Folks, I don't care if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Bible affirms that apart from the grace of God, there is nothing good in us. We are incapable of doing ultimate good. Notice I said ultimate good. What I mean by that is I realize that in the eyes of man, we can do some good things. We can accomplish some great benevolent works. We can feed the poor. We can uh, clothe the naked. We can build hospitals for the sick. But that's not what I call the ultimate good. By ultimate good, I mean good in the eyes of God that is able to justify us. Good that is able to deal with our sin problem. The good we can do in life is not able to justify us one bit in the eyes of a holy God when it comes to our real problem. There's nothing you and I can do to merit our own forgiveness or salvation. There is nothing you and I can do to, to earn a standing before God. So what does David do? He casts himself on the mercy of God's court. He calls out to God. And notice what he says here. Blot out my transgressions. He talks about that in, in verse 1, the second part of verse 1. 
Here is a Hebrew word that refers to transgressions. And it's like he's saying, God, remove my sin from your record books. You know, there are several places in the Bible that refer to God keeping record books. Write down Psalm 56, 8, and go back and read that. Write down also Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, and you can read that later. Malachi 3, 16, and then finally, Revelation 20 and verse 12. Those are just some of the places in, in the Bible that speak of God having record books. And, and David is saying, God, just blot out your record of my wrongdoings. And then secondly, he says, wash me from my iniquity. His evil is like a stain on his soul. And, and, and he's saying, God, just, just take your soap and wash it all away. And of course, we know that God's soap is the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. It is Christ's blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. A third thing that, that David does in calling out to God, he says, purify me with hyssop. He mentions hyssop in verse 7. Now, to the person in the Old Testament visiting the temple and watching the, the priest as they offered those lamb sacrifices, lambs and bulls and goats, they would understand what David is saying here. The lambs would be slain, and, and then the hyssop, a type of plant, would be dipped into the blood and sprinkled. Sprinkled on the altar. And so David is here asking that when the sin sacrifice is offered and the hyssop is dipped in blood, that he would in fact be seen as being clean. A fourth statement that he makes in calling out to God. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. You know, sin robs us of joy, doesn't it? Let me encourage you to also read Psalm 32 as a part of your study of Psalm 51. Because what you're going to see in Psalm 32 is that period of time in David's life when David was still trying to cover up his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Psalm 32, David says, he, he describes himself as, as being so miserable inside and just broken down. He had no joy. He said there, uh, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Notice what David is saying there. His body wasting away. Day and night, God's hand was heavy on David. David's vitality and his strength was, was drained away. Folks, that is what unconfessed and unrepented of sin had done in David's life. It had almost destroyed his, his life. And you and I can relate to that when, when we know there's something deeply wrong in our heart that we've not dealt with. 
David goes on, though, in verse 10 to say, create in me a clean heart. And then the second part of verse 10, he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. A spirit not given to the same sin. In other words, David is calling upon God to give him not only cleansing, but victory. David goes on to say, Do not cast me away from thy presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David may be thinking of what happened to King Saul. You'll remember that God took his hand off of King Saul. And David is pleading with God that God wouldn't do that with him. Now, folks, I think in the New Testament, how we might look at this properly is that we would ask God that God wouldn't remove his hand off of our lives, that God wouldn't leave us in a spiritual desert. We don't believe that God removes his spirit away from us. But we do know that there are times that just seems like God has taken his hand off of us. And we're in a spiritual drought. And we, we just don't sense the power and presence of the Lord in our lives at all. That's what David is asking that, that God wouldn't do. Then in verse 12 he says, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. That's what happens when God deals with our sins and cleanses us and gives us victory. The joy comes back. You see, folks, when we sin, we don't, we don't lose our salvation, but we do lose the joy of our salvation. David has lost the joy of his salvation. He's asking God to restore that joy. And then in verse 13, notice what he says will take place once God does this. He says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted to you. David is saying, I'll have a testimony, and through my testimony, others will be able to find hope in the Lord. If God will forgive me, others can see that God will surely forgive them also. Somebody has wisely said that penitents should be preachers. You don't have to stand behind a pulpit to preach. If God has forgiven you, you have a testimony of forgiveness to share. It's kind of like the blind man in John's gospel. They asked the blind man what had happened, and he said, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, I was blind, but now I see. Penitents ought to be preachers. Notice one more result in verse 18. David's acknowledging something powerful here. He says, may it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. You see, David is acknowledging that with him, with himself being the king of Israel, as long as his sin was still present, it would even have an effect upon his people. But when God dealt with King David, even David's people would be blessed. There's a lesson there. 
our sin can sometimes have a negative effect on other people. It, it doesn't always, but it can. You know, we think our sin is always a private matter between us and God, but it may not be a private matter at all. If we could only see with God's eyes what our sin has done, we would see that our sin has oftentimes affected other people. Well, folks, let me close tonight by giving you some lessons. Lesson number one, if, if it were not for God's nature, there would be no hope for any one of us. You know, people accuse God of all sorts of things. When in reality, if it were not for God's loving kindness and patience, we would all be destroyed. So again, if it were not for God's nature, there would not be hope for any of us. A second lesson. Our sin will not be dealt with until we own up to our condition. Our sin will not be dealt with until we own up to our condition. A third lesson. God's judgment against the human race is accurate and fair. God's judgment against you is accurate and fair. A fourth lesson, God will discipline His children until they return to Him. You know, I think back to Psalm 32 again. David was God's child. And David was absolutely miserable as long as he tried to cover up his sin. God will discipline his children that way. God takes his children to the woodshed, just like a loving parent would do. A loving parent disciplines his child when his child does wrong. God does the same with his children. Which also says something else to us. If you or I... If we could sin and sin and sin and not feel a thing, then we need to question our relationship with God. It may be because we're not God's child. Because, again, God disciplines His children until they return to Him. A fifth lesson. Christians need to be a witness to others of God's work of grace in their lives. If your sins have been forgiven, if you've come to faith in Jesus and your sins have been forgiven and now in your life as you go before God on a continual basis, any time you know that you've transgressed the law of God and you go before God and you confess your sins, we have the, we have the assurance in the Word of God that He forgives us and He does give us that victory. Then you've got something to teach others. You've got a testimony. And so you need to be a witness. You know, there's a wonderful hymn. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. To that, I think each one of us would give a hearty amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even from the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned against you, we see that from that 
point on on the pages of Scripture. You've dealt with sin. You covered their nakedness with the garments, the animal skins, which involved shed blood. And then in the Mosaic Law, uh, you gave the instructions for sin sacrifices that the people's sins could be covered. And those sacrifices pointed forward to the one complete sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son, where our sins would be taken away and removed, forever forgiven. And so, Father, we thank you for your plan of redemption that we see in the Bible, of how you've dealt with human sin so that we can have a right standing before you. Lord, that we can have fellowship with you. Thank you for what you've done in your loving kindness and in your mercy. Because God, if you had not worked in our lives in this way, there would be no hope. Lord, we thank you for David's testimony in Psalm 51 and what we learn about how one of your saints dealt with sin in his life because there's so many lessons in this psalm about how we need to deal with sin in our own lives. Father, we continue to pray for our church family. We want to pray for the Oxford family and in a special way right now. We thank you for Claude's testimony. He loved your word. And Lord, I thank you that he sees by sight now what we can only see by faith. I pray for Ricky and for Chuck and their families that you would comfort them. And Lord, I thank you that they have the assurance because they're believers as well, that they have the assurance that one day they will see their dad again. Thank you for Claude's inheritance that he has received in heaven. He's home now. His earthly struggles are over. Lord, we thank you that that is the great hope that we have in the gospel. That even, even though death will overtake us one day, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he lives, we too shall live. Lord, be with your church family wherever we are spread out and help us to be constant witnesses of the forgiveness that you've given us through the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.